Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to another edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I am bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, not one, but two guests. And don't worry, it's not going to be awkward where we're having to jump through two timelines and two different places. No, because these two guys grew up together. Today on the show, from the extremes, and, and more importantly, Youth Brigade and BYO fame, and, and another state of mind fame, and, and tons of stuff. Oh my gosh, we connect some dots on this episode. Mark and Sean Stern are on the show today. Uh, this is, of course, for Punk Rock Bowling. We're going to have a lot of fun stuff coming out this week for Punk Rock Bowling, but more on all that in a second. But first, if you would like to get in touch with me, you can head over to the email address, turnoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. There's also a Facebook page, uh, facebook.com slash turnoutapunk, run by my brother, both of those things. Uh, Tristan Abraham, he's the show producer. You can write to him. He'll get the messages to me. You can also find me on my own social media, at Damien. The best way to support the show is by telling all your friends, telling everyone you know about this podcast, uh, or subscribing to it and writing a review and rating it on your podcast listening to platform of choice. But speaking of support, this show would not be possible without the kind, loving support of the fine Fine folks, my friends, my, my good buddies at Vans and House of Vans. And House of Vans is back in Chicago. And my gosh, is it going to be an amazing summer. Well, it's also back in Vancouver. I'm going to be in Vancouver for a House of Vans event coming up uh, also in the near future. I will have more details on that as, as I get them. But House of Vans is going to be back in Chicago this summer with an insane like unbelievable lineup, uh, starting off with Vince Staples, then the Breeders, Julian Baker, Banks, Taking Back Sunday, Anderson Pack, The Rapture, special guests. I, I'm very excited to see who that special guest is. And then Converge. They're all going to be doing these curated parties at the House of Vans in Chicago. If you've never been to one of these parties, they're incredible. It's like a free, amazing show. Like, I'm going to say the best Best shows I've ever seen by some of these bands were at House of Vance events. And I'm not just saying that because they sponsor this podcast. I'm being 100% legitimate. I was talking to my brother about this the other day. I saw Cap and Jazz at the House of Vance last summer, and it was one of the best shows I've ever seen in my life. In my life. And so friends of the show, Julian Baker and Converge, and hopefully, you know, I'd love to interview Taking Back Sunday for this podcast at some point. The Breeders. I'm hoping they're going to fly me out to some of these. They they should. <laughs> I'm really hoping, but uh, we will we will find out. Oh my gosh, it's going to be a good 
summer. So House of Vans is back. Thank you, Vans, for supporting this podcast and letting me book whoever I want on this thing because I can I can just have whoever I want. Um, speaking of things that are coming up, I'm really excited about this thing coming up. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, – well, I guess we've got to talk about it because they're on the show this week. But uh, the the institution – Punk Rock Bowling is returning to Las Vegas. This is coming up next weekend. If you're listening to this podcast when it comes out, the weekend of like May 24th, uh, was that the May 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 two four weekend? I guess you call that. Yeah, you probably call that May two four weekend. Uh, it's that's what we call it in 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 Canada. But I don't know. You can call it whatever you want. But this is coming up. This is going to be a huge event uh, in Las Vegas. There's going to be tons of sideshows, tons of bands playing. Rancid, Flag, Descendants, Refused, Specials, like, you can just go on, Killing Joke, There's the bands that are playing the sideshow are, sideshows are ridiculous as well, it is, it is incredible, it's like punk rock takes over the city of Las Vegas, and my good friend Vanessa, who is a publicist at Fat Records, or publicist at Fat Records, and she also works at Punk Rock Bowl, and she hit me up and she's like, you know, I want to get you a bunch of cool guests for the show. And I was like looking at the schedule because we've had so many guests kind of lined up and already recorded. And I'm like, you know what? Let's just blow it out. Let's just do a, a one crazy little chunk of shows. So there's going to be for the next few days on Turned Out of Punk, a punk rock bowling marathon. So thank you to Vanessa for working hard and kind of putting this together. But we've got. Uh, I'm going to say right now, I haven't done one of these last interviews. It's going to come under the wire. I'm going to say we got, we got, well, let's just say two for now, <laughs> two for now, two amazing, incredible episodes. I'm going to reveal the, the next one at the end of this show, but we're starting off with the band youth brigade, the people that put on punk rock bowling each and every year, but also a band as you will hear in this podcast that I don't really think gets the credit they deserve for kind of kickstarting hardcore in, in uh, you know, a, a, at least a part of hardcore, um, certainly a DIY part of hardcore. This is illustrated in that, uh, you know, landmark documentary, the foundational canon documentary, Another State of Mind, where you see their tour across, you know, well, I guess most of North America. They don't go to Mexico, but they, they try and do most of North America. And you've got to see that. If you've not seen this documentary, you have to see this documentary. But like you'll hear in this one, we we get into some awesome stuff. Like, you know, I never thought when I first sat down and thought about doing a Youth Brigade interview that I would be talking about Escarbuto and Zhao with them. But that's the way it goes here at Turned Out of Punks. Speaking of going, before I let you go, I got to reiterate that finally, The Wrestlers, the TV show that I put my blood, sweat, and tears into for the better part of half a decade at least. Uh, also, the blood, sweat, and tears of the fine folks at Salazar, this incredible Nathan and Jeff team, and Yuji, and Colin, and Grady, and Sarah, who, my gosh, when you see some of the episodes that she found and, and put together that I I had no idea about in wrestling, you're, it's going to blow your minds. Uh uh, it, it, yeah, there's there's just so many people that worked on this over the years, like countless. I could go on forever about that, but I gotta say, without these people, none of this uh, would be happening. But it is finally happening. Thanks also, Dark Side of the Ring. So, proceeding, sorry, directly after Dark Side of the Ring on 
10 p.m. on Wednesdays starting next week, next Wednesday. Set your DVRs now or make plans now to have a screening party. Invite all your friends. And then if you report ratings, say there were like 25 more people in there than there were. Just add an extra, you know, it's wrestling tradition to inflate the numbers, right? Exactly. Uh, But no, you... You got to see this thing. I'm so proud of it. So happy. Next week, uh, it is going to be premiering. The first episode is about Evolve Wrestling featuring Darby Allen. More on that uh, next week on the show. Actually, Darby Allen will be a guest. You know, advanced spoiler on that one. And it's an incredible episode. Where do you see this guy in this documentary? Oh, my gosh. He is uh, a, a class unto himself in pro wrestling. Uh, it, also featuring the music of Neurosis. It is, yeah, something to behold. That is next week on Viceland. So I'm not going to blather on anymore. I'm going to let you sit back, relax, and enjoy Sean and Mark Stern from Youth Brigade and the Extremes, good underrated band, as we talk about a lot on this podcast, uh, on Turn Out a Punk. <laughs> Mark, Sean, thank you both for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having us. Yeah, happy to be here. Well, as I was just telling you off air, it is a huge honor to have you on the show because, you know, it's it's only when I kind of flip through my record collection that I realize that Youth Brigade and, and yourselves, obviously, are the link between so many disparate international punk scenes. And that's what that's the bread and butter of this show. So, oh, my gosh, is it going to get nerdy? <laughs> uh, but before we get to that, I got to start it off the way I start them all off, which is how did you get into punk? And I guess whichever one of you got into punk first, maybe, I don't know how this is going to work, but I would love to hear how it happened. Well, Sean's a year older, so even though we probably got into it about the same time, I guess he was a couple days earlier. <laughs> a couple days earlier. <laughs> yeah. I mean. It was the summer of 77, and uh, so the the big paper in town, the LA Times, the big rock critic, Robert Hilburn, he wrote an article about the punk rock and the Pistols, and the Pistols were touring or about to tour the States, and I read that, and then um, on the local rock radio, which at the time was KMET, they played late night on one of these shows where they played, you know, the whole album of a new artist. They played Elvis Costello's My Aim is True. Mm-hmm. And I heard that. Um, and that's really, that's really got me interested. And, uh, you know, I started reading about it. We had already started a band. We've been playing music for a while. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that was sort of the beginning of it. And then w- the first show we went to was a few months, probably six months later, we went to yeah. see... Dickies. We, yeah, we went to see the Dickies at the Whiskey. Oh, what well, well, so backtrack. So we had a band in high school, so and started listening to Sex Pistols and stuff like that. We we changed our sound and started writing songs, or was that after the Dickies show? No, that was then, yeah. It was around then, because it was me, Sean, and this other guy from school. You know, we were surfers and had long hair. And we went to the Dickie show, and our bass player, he kind of freaked out. He, le- he left, I think. <laughs> yeah. He couldn't deal with it. It was the weirdest thing. We were just at the Whiskey last week for Koki the Clown, and uh, I was telling Mike this story, too, and, and it was Mike's first place to see a show. But that 
He was later. His his was like subhumans, but this was seventy eight, seventy seven, seventy eight. It was seventy eight. Spring of seventy eight because the the Dickies were about to get signed. So we had heard about him. We didn't really know much about him. We were I was at probably seventeen. You were probably sixteen. Um, and we went down to the show, and we didn't really have tickets, and we didn't know. We were sort of hanging around the back, and there was this bouncer guy. He looked like Lurch from the Munsters, <laughs> and actually, I think people called him Lurch. And uh, he looked at us. And he's like, "Oh, you guys want to get in?" And he he's like, "Give me five bucks each, and I'll let you in through the back door." I don't know why. I mean, I think there were still tickets for sale, but we went inside, and this guy um, Richard Melzer, who was a cr- rock critic. Out of Seattle, I guess. Yeah, he he had a band called Vom. Yeah, great band, absolutely. Oh, no, they weren't great that night. (laughs) (laughs) Electrocute My Cock is a classic. (laughs) Well, yeah, maybe, but, you know, this is the first punk thing we ever saw. We're 16, 17 years old. And uh, we sat, we went upstairs. They still had some seats up there. um, And we were sitting there waiting for the band to come on and they come on and they're fucking terrible. They can barely play because he, his, you know, his thing was, Oh, punk rock. Anybody can play it, which, which yes, it's true. Anybody can do it. That was the beauty of punk rock, but that doesn't mean you're any good. Yeah. And, uh, they were not good. There were, you know, 35, 40 year old men up there playing and they were really bad. And then at the end of their set, first of all, there was barely anybody watching them maybe 20 people on the mm-hmm. floor. It was dead. Um, and at the end of their set, this woman... She, there was two, two of them. Was there two? Yeah, I don't like, remember one. Dressed as like French prostitutes. They were dancing to the song, and then they just pulled... Well, the one did. She just pulled a, like a bloody tampon out. Out of her pussy. Out of her pussy and started eating it. And we were like, what the fuck is <laughs> and that? And that's when the two friends... It wasn't Scott, our bass player, but it was two other friends... Because we were big stoners in high school, but two of our stoner friends came, and they said, that's it, we're out of here, and they left. <laughs> or they... they t- I, I, they left i think they said we're out of here and we said no wait 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 for the dickies and then when the dickies went on a whole crowd of people came in because basically what the dickies did was they told everybody at the canterbury which was the hangout up in hollywood they said come on down to our show we'll put you on our list because the a&m scouts a&m's um a&r people were coming down to look at to, to sort of see them play because they were they wanted to sign them which they eventually did but yeah so dickies come on Place fills up and they just go. They they just blew us away. We we all just sat there with our mouths wide open, going, "This is amazing!" And that was it. Was pretty much then that I said, "That's it, man. I don't want to do covers." Because before in our high school band, we were mostly doing covers. Of, we we were into Jimi Hendrix and you know Aerosmith and Led Zeppelin and all the seventies punk rock bands. Because that's what we that's what we listened to. That's what we grew up with. Mm-hmm. And after we saw that, I said, "Fuck it, we're just going to write." But the good the good seventies rock band. Well, the the bad the the shitty seventies rock bands came later. You're talking like Foreigner and yeah, Journey and all that, that stuff. stuff. Sucks. Yeah. Then, um, so yeah, so that's that was the Dickie show. That's what really inspired us to to start writing our own stuff, and that's when we formed. That's when we our band. It was called Mess. We started playing our own stuff, and we we mostly just played parties. And then in that summer, we went up to Hollywood, and that's when we met some of the people up there that are actually in the punk scene mm-hmm. uh, and started hanging out there. And then we started, that's when we formed the ext- extremes. So I guess like, what was it that, you know, 
you know, sorry, prior to that, when you're listening to sort of the 70s rock stuff, were you aware of like the Stooges and, and the MC5 stuff? Or like, or was this like completely a new world uh, opening for you? It, it was a completely new world. I mean, we we heard we, the MC5 and stuff. Well, I, I mean, more like, you, you know, you'd hear the glam stuff and the <laughs> David Bowie stuff because, you know, Rodney Bingenheimer had that club. But we were, when that stuff was coming out, we were, you know, 12, 13, 14 years old. So <laughs> now we we, we weren't really going out. We, we were just starting to go out to shows. I think the first show we went to, we were 14, 15. We went to Robin Trower at the... And then song. we went back to Toronto and we went and saw the... Beach well, yeah, and sep- in, that was in 78. Yeah. Really? So after the Dickie. Yeah, we went, we went up to visit family in Toronto. And that was the... So I think it was summer of 78 when, uh, when Devo's Are We Not Men came out. Mm-hmm. And we really loved that record. And... The B fifty two seven inch with Rock Lobster had come out, and we were in Toronto, and it just so happened they were playing at the Horseshoe with the B people. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so what a we sick show. Yeah, yeah. So we so we went up there, and we just said, "Yeah, we're from L.A." And I don't know what it was, but somehow the guy at the door thought we said we're in this band from L.A., and he thought we were somebody else. I don't know, but they let us in for free, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was pretty awesome. <laughs> And that opened up a whole new world to us, yeah. getting into free shows. Yeah. yeah. And we never paid for a show ever since now. <laughs> That's why you got to start a band, right? You're like, oh, i got to stop paying for these shows. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's the only person. Yeah. <laughs> so was that the only show you got a chance to see when you were in Toronto on that trip? Yeah. There wasn't. Yeah, there wasn't like a scene really nah. much yet. It was just starting. I mean, I'm sure there was somewhat of a scene, but it was pretty small and it, it wasn't as if there was a bunch of punk people. It was funny because when we were touring early on in Canada, some of the smaller cities, like in Saskatoon, remember? Mm-hmm. They, they all, it was some college that we played in, and they colored their hair, everybody that came. I mean, it was a lot of people. It was on that social It was like temporary dye. Yeah. And so it was, they were sweating, and the dye was just rolling down <laughs> their face. It was <laughs> yeah, because it was Vice Squad, us, and Social Distortion. Yeah. Oh. Now we're getting way ahead of ourselves. Yeah, yeah, we're jumping yeah. way ahead, but I think that's like, and I, and we're definitely. I want to cover that obviously that tour extensively because that is really like you guys were bringing hardcore to all these places like pre-internet, where I'm sure like the only relationship they had to this music was like the odd thing they were picking up. Yeah, fanzines, postcards. Yeah, yeah, letter. I'm using the U.S. and Canadian postal service around the world, and and that's how everybody communicated. And it, when I when I was booking the, the another state of mind tour, it was basically uh, we don't know people in a lot of these towns, so we would just I would just call the local college radio station or find a record store in the Yellow Pages. Yes, we still use the Yellow Pages then, <laughs> and and then I just say, hey, we're in this band and we're coming up from L.A. Sometimes they knew who we were. Um, a lot of times they had no idea, but most of the people were pretty cool and they helped hook us up. And that that was just how the DIY scene sort of got going i mean that, we did it discord people did it touch and go people did it you know even DOA. even the yeah doa, DOA. Did it, sst people did it everybody <coughs> that's what you did you know yeah. and everybody would sort of exchange numbers and contacts and sometimes people were around for years and sometimes they were flashing the pan and they were gone after six months but that was yeah. the fun stuff it was all an adventure well it's amazing too because like you know obviously another state of mind is is like the document that is like timeless because it's still the shows and the experiences that you guys have are still had by DIY bands to this day. Like it's amazing how, you know, like that, that you guys could have put it out last year and it would be believable. 
Minus the lack of cell phones, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> cell phones and internet and, and yeah. And but people I mean, making music. Yeah. A rock band. And, It'd be uh, a lot easier to make the movie now. Yeah. yeah cell phone. <laughs> there there wouldn't be reels of lost footage at this point. Yeah, exactly. We had a whole truck with a crew. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, but, it was a three-person crew. Three-person yeah. crew, but still. Uh, what was it? I Just jumping back in time, How? what were the kind of like differences you noticed between what you had seen in L.A. and the that sort of early punk scene versus what you were seeing in – in you know Toronto at that first punk show. Um, I mean, well, it's hard to say because in LA there was a, you know, you know that Generation X song "One Hundred Punks Rule." Yeah, that's pretty much like Hollywood was. There was a hundred punks. They all lived in a building called Canterbury um, through the alley at the Pussycat Theater. Was a mask, so everybody lived in the building. Everyone in the building was in in a band, and all the bands played a block away the mask so that was pretty much yeah what you would do you'd be at the building everyone would practice in the basement and then oh so-and-so is playing at the mask and then everybody from the building would then go to the mask yeah half a block block down the street and (laughs) pay a buck or whatever and then just so you probably don't know the pussycat theater is a porn theater it was a bit of a chain for in the 70s and and the mask was pretty much the first underground punk club it was run by this guy brandon mullen um, this Irish guy who moved out here and became a pretty good. I mean, he was one of the sort of trailblazing promoters who was in the punk scene. He, he played in a few different bands as well. He's a good drummer. And uh, the mask was in the basement of that Pussycat Theater. Yeah, I went actually a couple years ago to LA and, and we kind of somehow talked the janitor into letting us get into the building so we could go down and see where the mask was because there's still the graffiti on the wall, at least a couple oh, yeah. years ago. Yeah, 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 oh, yeah, um, yeah. So I mean, that's how Hollywood was, and so Toronto. I mean, if there was something like that, we weren't. You know, we didn't know about it. I don't think there was. But yeah, you know, we were just we were two teenage kids who just happened to be visiting our family and saw, hey, look, B fifty twos are playing. Let's go. We knew Rock Lobster. We had the seven inch, and it was awesome. We 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 somehow managed to worm our way in for free. Um, it was a great show, but I. I I can't say that I saw some burgeoning, you know, punk scene in Toronto in 1978. I'm sure there was there, you know, there was there were some bands. What's the band who did the Red Rubber Ball? I mean, I think oh, they the existed. There is like the yeah. Diodes, the Demics, um, sort of the Diodes, yeah. the Red Rubber Ball. Yeah, yeah, they probably existed then, but we didn't know. I mean, you know, we were 78. I was probably eight, 18. I just turned 18. You just turned 17. So. I guess jumping back to when you, you know, in LA and you're starting the extremes, what was the scene like that that band fit into? Because it's like very much a minimal synth band. And I love that single. I think that single super underrated. <laughs> That's because nobody's heard it. Yeah. <laughs> we, buried, we buried that sucker. But yeah, you, you have to understand that the punk scene in, in those days was very diverse. You know, yeah, absolutely. one of the biggest, yeah. One of the biggest bands in LA punk scene was the screamers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Got a singer, uh, this guy to sing with us who lived at the Canterbury, basically so that we could be in, you know, get into that punk scene there. We were we were a ha- among a handful of you know teenagers that were in the scene. That scene, that original scene, was mostly people in their mid twenties all the way up to their forties. It was very arty, um, and uh, most of the people involved were 
you know, looking at England and looking at New York, and that was their, they were aspiring to be bands like that, but also to get a, a deal with a major label. So we were, we were there, but, you know, we kept saying for a long time, wait till all the surfers and skaters get into punk rock, then it's just going to explode. Um, they, those people didn't really care so much about that. They just wanted to get A&R people down to see them. You know, the Dickies, yeah, the Dickies were going, the first band to get signed out of that scene. Well, going back to the extremes, though, that's what we're talking about is, you know, the extremes were pretty much, you know, in that realm. Voodoo, uh, Wall of Voodoo came out of that. That came later. Came a little later. Nervous Gender was another sort yeah. of Yeah, so there was a lot of band. kind of synth bands, and we would play, you know, the extremes were playing with X, The Bags, The Go-Go's, um, you know, all the all those bands. The Weirdos. The Go-Go's were a punk band when they started. They used to rehearse. We were friends with them, and they used to rehearse in the same space. In the, in the, because bands would rehearse in the Mask as well in the daytime, as well as at the Canterbury in the basement there. But the Germs pl- rehearsed there. The Bags, the Weirdos, the Skulls, everybody. You know, F yeah, word. Well, remember them? Oh, absolutely. And it's always talked about, like you know, like what you're referring to is this sort of dividing line that happened and there's and it's the way it's kind of talked about at least in a lot of the documentaries and a lot of the books is that there was this kind of cool arty inclusive scene and then this giant uh surf punk suburb scene came in and and squashed it is that what you guys saw or is it is that just like a misreading that's that's uh that's sour grapes i think on the older people from our from my perspective because remember we were part of that surf the, the crazy surf scene. We embraced that scene because before that, it was just these already farty people. And then, you know, you have to also remember at the time, punk rock, to, to walk down the street with a mohawk or colored hair or whatever, you got a lot of abuse from, from hippies and jocks and stuff. Yeah. So when everybody started cutting their hair and getting into punk rock, that abuse started, the table started turning, you know? Mm-hmm. People... So, so that early art scene, it, people it, gave you shit. Yeah. You could turn around and beat the shit out of them. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I think the perfect example of what you're talking about was X talking about it in uh, in uh, the decline of Western civilization. Well, yeah. and in that new documentary, Punks too. Yeah, like yeah, I didn't see you watch it. No, I, I've, I've I watched, watched a little bit of it. Yeah, yeah I did. We went to the screening, but it was just little snippets from each episode. Each uh, episode, but I did watch the third one, which is kind of LA because that one was still on YouTube. I guess MGM pulled them all off. Oh, or they something. did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I watched that part, and there was yeah, there, the people were pretty much yeah. After 1980, you know, pretty much the punk scene was dead. But you know, that's the thing is, but what it, but but. My my contention is that most of those people, all they really wanted to do was get signed to a major label and have a career. And I mean, X and the Dickies did it, um, and then the other most of the other bands didn't, and they broke up. Whereas the bands that that, that got together when that scene exploded, you know, that's when we started Youth Brigade. That's when we started running Godzillas. That's when we were putting on Youth Movement '82 and '83 and and yeah. promoting shows and started the label and stuff. So those people, as much as I. I love them all. They're all great people, and believe me, it was they were huge influences on us. The bands, all those they were bands, all pioneers. Yeah, they were pioneers, but they kind of gave up. I mean, I, I I understand that they're saying we were alienated. It got violent. Yeah, it did. But there was a lot of frustration out there, 
And that's the way it got dealt with. I mean, I'm not going to justify some of the violence, but some of it was just, that was what drew me to punk rock in the first place. And the, and the words that I write are of the frustration of the, basically the failure of the hippies um, who basically said, you know, we want to fight against the war. We want to fight against uh, all, all these different causes. But for me, those problems didn't go away. They just, those guys just gave up. That to me was what punk rock was about. It was a reaction to the fact that those problems still existed and music should reflect that. And, and punk rock still does. Rock and roll, not so much. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think it's, it's interesting to hear from people that were there, like you're saying, that, that have, you know, another perspective on it because the way the history is written, it's like people ignore the fact that, no, like – after punk died and hardcore gets going, that's when it becomes something international. That's when it becomes something that's kind of revolutionary. Mm -hmm. And that's when it became also um, more of a, a, a international scene, I, I guess, you know, that's um, before it was, you know, kind of con constricted to each town. Everybody was just out for themselves. I mean, even when you look at the English bands, I mean, most of the English bands were just trying to get, they're all on major labels. Yeah. It's all your favorite English bands. They, you know, they, you know, hey, if I could make money off playing music and get a, a get signed to a label, you know, and all of them lost all the rights to all their music, you know, where in in the states, that's what's funny about people talking about, you know, that's the where punk was, you know, the biggest. It was born there. It's like L.A. has always had the biggest punk scene. You know, so, well, and, so, put it this way: since look, New York Dolls and Iggy Pop, they're considered the fathers really of punk rock, even though everybody looks at the Pistols and the English scene and the Clash and all those bands who we loved. But, you know, they all followed the model of what rock and roll had become, which was you start a band, you get a buzz, you sign to a major label, and then you become, you know, that becomes their career. And that's what the people in L.A. were trying to do. They were looking to New York, they were looking to London, and that's what they were trying to do. They were trying to follow that model because that's all they knew. A few people started little independent labels, but there was few and far between. And it wasn't until the scene blew up. And, you know, I, me personally, it's all punk rock. The whole term of hardcore, I think, was coined by Tim Yohannan at Maximum Rock and Roll. I don't really delineate a difference between punk rock and hardcore. To me, hardcore is a sort of subset of punk rock, but whatever. That's semantics. I don't really care. The fact of the matter is the DIY scene that we were a part of creating and, and by no means were we the only ones. It happened in towns all around the world, first mostly in the U.S., I mean, between what we were doing here, what SST was doing, uh, what Alternative Tentacles up in San Francisco, there were some smaller labels here and up there, then Discord in D.C., there was some stuff in New York, there was the guys up in Boston, there was Touch and Go in Detroit, there's probably some others that I'm not thinking about right now, but... That scene was started by younger people who didn't care about signing to a major label. They, we knew that major labels weren't interested in us, and we weren't interested in working with them because we, we, we saw early on that you go to a major label, you're going to get co-opted. They're going to tell you what to do. They're going to try and own your music, and we had no interest in that. It was a kind of a necessity thing, too, because they weren't interested in us. They, we were small-time. And, and that's the way it remained until the 90s. And, you know, then you, you see what happened when that all changed. 
Oh yeah, and some of the band, some of the bands did sign. Bad Religion signed to a major Green label. Day. Yeah. Well, Green Green Day was later, but I mean, Bad Religion, one of the one of the bands that had their own label. You know, there was a sort of consensus that you could only go so far on an independent. You needed the major, and then they signed to the major, and what happened? The Offspring went fucking platinum, double platinum on Epitaph. And, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think that thing's probably like, you know, almost what double diamond by this point or something insane. Like it's it's uh like even those metrics matter at this point, but it's still like yeah. yeah, it's ridiculous how big it got. But with with the extremes, given the sound you guys were playing and given the, you know, different time frame, what did you ever have any interest from any other major labels or sorry, any labels other than, you know, test tube records or any majors? No, and te- Test Tube Records wasn't a label. It was just this kid who <laughs> and, liked punk rock and liked the band. And Greg Hudson was like uh, part of it. Was oh, he? Really? Yeah, he helped. Yeah. He, he, it wasn't his thing, but that was his friend. And I know that he was there helping him out, like present records and stuff. They well, did, the, we did, they did uh, a Zero's record too, right? I think. Did they do a zero record? No, I think he only did that one thing. Uh, he might have done a zero seven inch. A seven inch, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Seven but he inch. didn't really. I'll tell you what, he didn't really know what he was doing. Not that we did, yeah. but I'm, you know, I'm the one. We we were the ones who called around because we didn't know how to do this stuff. So we just sure we we just found. Uh, you know, I just again yellow pages. I called some record pressing plants. I and I just asked them questions, and then you know, I basically relayed that information to the kid who was going to pay for it. And I mean, basically, he paid for it, and we helped sort of put the whole thing together. It's just DIY. It's not really that difficult to do. He didn't. You know, he'd never done it. We'd never done it. We sort of all figured it out together. And from that, that's when you know we had already learned the information so that we could do our own. Yes, well, there was that, that, sorry, go on. Uh, there was the label that, that did, so like Ultravox in the magazine, Elizabeth worked for that. That was out of England though, wasn't it? Yeah, but that, they were interested in, in doing something with us, but that's when we broke up. Oh. Yeah, I mean, you have to understand the Extremes didn't start off with a synthesizer in the band. The Streams the stream started off as a guitar band. So when we started, yeah, when we started... Russell was the bass player, and then, you know, he kept sort of saying, oh, let me play some synthesizer on a song or two. And that's how the synthesizer got into it. And I, I wasn't really into it. That's that's why the band, well, I left the band, and they, they tried to, they continued on for a little while, but. Yeah, well, because I, I continued with uh, with the singer, and then we got another keyboard player. Well, that, he was some in of the guys, band when I was in. Yeah, we had some of the guys from the Flyboys. Um, oh yeah, then you had John and uh, what was the other guys? Thames, Thames, yeah. Oh yeah, some of the Flyboys got in, and, and so Sean left, and I, I continued on with these guys. We were doing more like Factory Records kind of uh, sound, you know, Joy Division, um, Ultravox magazine, Man. you know. I was really into all that that whole scene. Mm-hmm. Well, I love time. that stuff too. Yeah, and it just kind of it kind of burned out. We didn't really have any, you know, we weren't gaining any new followers. So. Extremes was a, you know, it was a flash in the pan thing that we did. What did we work on it for? Maybe a year. Maybe you guys went on for another three or four months. And then what happened was I found this house in Hollywood that we moved into called Skinhead Manor, and uh, and that's sort of where Youth Brigade started, and some other bands, No Crisis, started there. Didn't the Circle Dorks used to practice in the garage for a little while. Yeah. 
Uh, Black Flag. No, Black Flag never. Just yeah. Circle Jerks. No, no. Uh, maybe the Jerks, yeah. Yeah, the Jerks. They would have been beefing, I would imagine, at that point. So it'd be, uh, I guess, an awkward situation if they're practicing in the same spot. Yeah, they weren't because the black black flag is in the South Bay, and they rarely left the South Bay. That's where they practiced. That's where they had SSC. That's where it's always been. Yeah, no crisis. Record- Sorry. Well, you know what the thing is? Didn't we record extreme single with Spot? Yeah, you did. Yeah. Stop the basketball game, Mark, and pay attention. I'm I'm doing both. Um, <laughs> Yeah, we recorded the extreme single. I'm losing money while I do the interview. <laughs> we we recorded the extreme single down in South Bay at was it called Art Spot? Ugh. Fuck, I can't remember the name of the studio. But anyhow, this guy Spot was an engineer. He worked on a bunch of the SST stuff, and that was the first time we went to the church, which is where they live. Some some it wasn't squatted, but they rented this old church and they lived there. And also, you have a. And Jenny Lenz took photos in the in the for the record too, right? Jenny Lenz, did she? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah probably. She, she's credited that on was, the record. Yeah, Jenny Lenz. Yeah, she's a trip. Yeah, like uh, it's amazing. Like you know, because it's funny because you obviously Youth Brigade is is such a legendary band and so important, but it's it's funny how extremes. You know, it's it's overlooked, but it's such a like in the cut punk record, like pre codification of punk, but in the cut punk record. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, that's because we were a punk band when we started that, and then all the arty farty people started bringing in stupid synthesizers. <laughs> I mean, look, I, I love magazine, I love those bands, but we weren't those bands, you know. Yeah. So, I mean, what? Come on, Ephemeral Living. Ephemeral Living is funny song. <laughs> it, there's, there's I, I, that single. I, I do love that single, but I will not punish you anymore about it. I promise. So, <laughs> when you, when you get that house, like, was there? Like, did you, was there like a shift? Did you have friends that you're like, yeah, guys, we're not, we're not down with this. We're, we're part of this thing that was way more youthful and way more energetic. Was there like friends that didn't come along for the ride with you? Well, yeah, remember the beginning. Yeah. Remember when we looked at the house and it was this old lady who owned it and she was living there. You know, the, that old sixties TV show, the Beverly Hillbillies. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it kind of looked like so many people. They were living in this fucking big, it was this big ass house with, I don't know, where did it have nine, ten bedrooms? Yeah, just totally run down. Run down. Like, should have been condemned. Yeah. And uh, and so we said, all right, well, we'll rent it. What were we paying? Like $900 a month I or something? Think so, yeah. And we figured, all right, well, we'll get six people in here and pay the 120 bucks a month or whatever the hell it was. But yeah, they they were living in there. They were they had a hot plate, and you know it, it looked like they were gonna light the place on fire any minute. It smelled horrible. They had so many animals, and, and they tried to say, "Well, you can rent it, but this guy's gonna live here." Well, no, everybody's got to go. You know, we, we were only there for a year. So, but when we moved in first, it was me and you and Peter Stewart, who we went to high school with. He's one of the guys that went on another state of mind with. He he lived there in the beginning. Yeah. Um, Kevin Hunter. Kevin Hunter lived there too. What was the band he ended up being in? Um, well, me and him, me and those guys were in a band called the Johnnies. Oh yeah. And then Kevin went on to do Wire Train. Yeah, Wire Train. This really wimpy new yeah, wave band. Yeah, a couple band. of hits. Yeah, they had a couple. Oh, God, I don't even know that band. And then, uh, and then there was a, there was that one girl lived there for a minute. But we had people coming in and out. We started people people started bailing because it started getting you know. Basically, the living room, we put a stage in there, so it became this crazy party house, and 
Yeah, so we, Mark and I were going to more and more punk shows, and the other people were not digging it, and then they started bailing, and we started getting other new people moving in that were more into the punk rock scene, and not to the arty sort of new wave scene. We would just take whoever we could get at that point. Remember, we, we put an ad, because... When we decided that we wanted to start Youth Brigade, we first see, I was taking vocal class. I was going to Santa Monica City College and I was taking vocal classes there and I had to sing a song every week. And, uh, you know, it was, I would have to go in and sit with the, this woman who, I'd get sheet music and she'd play the piano and I, I accompany me and I'd have to sing. Everyone in the class had to do it. Most people were doing, you know, standard, boring songs, popular songs of the day. I was looking and finding swing songs, you know, mm-hmm. out of, out of I don't even know where. I was looking at Tex Beneke and all these people. I'd go to the library, I'd find all these old swing albums, and I'd come up with these awesome songs, and the teacher loved it. Um, and, and so that's when I came up with this idea. Hey, what, what if we did a band where we, we took this sort of swingy sound and we took oi, sort of punk rock and oi, and we mixed it together. We need, you know, because that was right at the time of this of the two tone invasion, and madness was come had come out, specials come out, and I'm like I want to mix all this stuff together. The problem was, you know, so we advertised in the paper in the the, the local paper here at the time for for really cheap classified ads because in those days you still had to pay. Was the recycler, and so we got people coming out to try out for the band who could play horns and they were mostly kids in high school who were in the, you know, in the, in the high school band and they could play. But the problem was we couldn't play. We weren't good enough to play that kind of music. Mm-hmm. And that, that became apparent pretty quick. But I remember we had that one guy, the big transvestite guy, Paul, he moved in. It's the nicest guy. And he, he did a uh, transvestite shows where he would dress up as a opera singer. Yeah. He was, he was fucked. He, that guy was good. And we were practicing one day and we, we couldn't really sort of figure it out. He jumped up and got in, in and he's like, no, you got to do it like this. And we were all just blown away how good the guy was. <laughs> but unfortunately, this weird, vast array of people there, it it just didn't work out because, of, you know, we were, what, 19, 20 years old. And, uh, you know, it gets, it gets a little tiring when I, I sort of had this idea of this kind of commune thing where everybody pitched in and. We all went out and got food stamps so we could get food and we worked shitty little jobs to pay the rent, but a lot of people just wanted to party and take drugs and fuck off and eventually the whole thing fell apart and then somehow somebody mysteriously lit the place on fire after we left and burned it down. Holy. Maybe it was a hot plate. Yeah, it might have been the hot plate. Might have been the hot plate. Wow. So what was did so did that band ever get to the point of being able to record like that early Youth Brigade incarnation? No, no. We we eventually we did, some dem- we, we did those demos. Well, what what happened was we dumped the horn idea, right? And then we got a couple of our buddies in. Well, to sing. with the horns, it was originally Youth Brigade was called the Swing Skins Brigade. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah, pretty weird um, name for two Jews. SS. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's also Sean Stern, so you three know. Jews. Sorry, Adam. Yeah. Adam is in the- <laughs> Nobody. It, where was the Oi influence coming from? Like, what were the bands you guys were really into that was that were doing that sound at that point? Oh, Angelic Upstarts, Cockney Rejects, Ham Sixty Nine, Stiff Little Finger, Stiff Little Finger. Well, Stiff, Stiff Little Finger is not really what I consider an Oi band, no. but you know, we were listening but, to a lot of. English stuff. But we were also in like Madness. We were into yeah. that, so that's Specials, why that's how the horn thing. We tried to do the horn thing. But. 
That's great. Because it would have been like, I guess that would have been almost like ska punk, you know, but before anyone else was doing that sound. Yeah. Well, I mean, you could argue that the, the two-tone sound was yeah, kind I mean, of ska, although it wasn't it was more ska than punk. Yeah. But, I meant more know. like a third wave kind of ska punk, I guess. Yeah. I, yeah, it could have been, but we just weren't, we weren't at the point where we could play that stuff yet. Mm-hmm. And so then it just... Then it became more of a just a punk band that was definitely oi influenced, and we got a couple of our friends to sing. So we had three, me, and then these two guys singing. But it was pretty. We we made this demo tape, and then it was pretty clear that they sucked too, and they couldn't barely sing. So we had to get rid of them. So we broke the band up, and then we reformed because we just didn't want to kick them out. <laughs> <laughs> and then we reformed as a four piece with our friend uh, Kevin playing guitar. Yeah, that's when we recorded. Yeah, that's, that's when we recorded the three songs for another. Uh, someone's gonna get someone's gonna get a Yeah. Um, and so like, was there? Because like, that's I guess, it, like, it feels like that must been like you know a different scene than it happened before. Was that comp kind of like you guys acknowledging that there's a new scene coming and all these new bands, or or is it just something that naturally happened? It kind of naturally happened because well, I we knew know. aggression. Well, so, we were we were promoting shows though. Yeah, like, but, the whole time I was doing like you know, um, vets halls. We were renting halls out. We were doing stuff like that. So, you know, we were all these bands were were coming around. So, so it we were, it, but it was a it was kind of an exciting time because we were meeting bands from all over. Before, like we were talking earlier, before the scene was pretty much Hollywood. Even though some some quite a few of the people came from other areas of of Southern California, everybody moved to Hollywood. But once that whole scene sort of faded away, and you know, shows started happening at the Vex and then down at uh, Fleetwood in, in South Bay. And, you know, it, we were going, we were having a lot of problems with the cops coming. So we were getting, ban- Punk was getting banned at the Roxy and the Whiskey and the, and the Starwood. Starwood was doing shows on Tuesdays for a long time. And, you know, it was going back and forth. And then it got to the point where we, People had to rent out halls, and we, we started renting out halls to do shows, and then we started Godzilla's. So this was all happening around the same time, and we were meeting people. Godzilla's, first Skinhead Manor was a, gr- a great meeting place, and then that, the time of the summer that we were living at, at Skinhead Manor was a time when every Tuesday night there was a punk show at Starwood. And so a lot of bands were popping up from different places and playing at Starwood and meeting, and you know that, that scene was sort of growing, and then when the when the manor fell apart, and we met a ton of bands, when the manor fell apart was when we moved to other places, and then we started Godzilla's, and then we met tons, even more bands, and we were booking the bands at the shows, and we were playing with bands at all these different places, and yeah, I mean, it, it was just, it was a new and exciting time, and a lot of those bands that were around from the early days, the Canterbury, the Mass days, they broke up, or just, a few of them still hung out, and still played, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, sort of that ended and this began. It was crossover sort of thing. It, it took some time. Um, and then it exploded into the point where uh, we, were, we were doing shows and Golden Voice was up in Santa Barbara. And then what happened was we started, when we were doing Godzilla's, there were a lot of English fans decided they were start, wanted to come over. And we're talking about the sort of second wave, um, Antipasti, Gronjan, um, some of the smaller bands and we started talking with this New York 
uh, agent who was the representative, and, and she started to try and play us off against Golden Boys to bid to bid up the price for the guarantees. And we just we were friends with Golden Boys because we'd done shows with with Gary Tovar, the guy who started Golden Boys, and we just called him up. Mark called him up and said, "Dude, why are we letting these fuckers manipulate us like this? Let's just co-promote." And we'll set the price because the only way we could afford the prices they were asking is if we raised the door price, and we didn't want to do that because we knew it was going to be, you know, it was going to be a problem for people to be able to afford that, and that wasn't conducive to, you know, pushing the scene. And that's what we were about. We wanted to promote. Yeah, punk just rock. to put it in context, like with Godzilla's, it was five dollars. Every show was five dollars unless the band was from overseas, and it was six. Okay. Beers were a dollar, a burger was a dollar, fries were a dollar. And everybody who worked there was our friend. How many people? Like 50, 40 people. Yeah, we, the, we employed 40 people, yeah. all punks, and ran it, you know. Everyone got paid. All the bands got paid more money than they ever got paid at any clubs. Yeah, and then and, and I was sort of overseeing the security, and my, my philosophy was because, you know, it was true, there was some infighting, and that, that was when it was beginning, where people were fighting because... Oh, you're from here. I'm from here. And it was a sort of stupid. Not. It wasn't quite the gang mentality that eventually happened, but it was starting a little bit. And my thing was, I'm going to hire people from all these different areas that I know, and that way, chances are, if there's a fight, there someone's going to know someone that's in the fight. And it became this sort of peer pressure thing of, what the fuck are you doing, fucking up your own scene, you idiot? <laughs> if you come here, you come here and have a good time. If you start a fight, we're going to throw you out. And you may know the guy that was security, and they were going to jump in the middle and say, stop fighting, or you get thrown out. And it, and it worked pretty well early on. Unfortunately, the club didn't last more than, what was it, six months? Not even. Yeah, like, no, well, no, it was, I like think we went months. in the fall, and then we were out by new, after New Year's. Yeah. yeah. Was, was it like an idea of trying to do something that was like vertical integration or is it just like you're seeing holes at the time? Like you're like, okay, we got a club now. Like we, there's nowhere to put out records. Let's start a label. Yeah, it was, it was purely necessity because it was just a matter of, we have a band we want to play shows. Punk rock is banned at all these places as well. And we got to put our own shows. DIY was something that we had to do. We had no choice. If we wanted to do a show, we had to put it on. We wanted to put out a record. We had to put a record and, out, and that's you know that's how we ended up you know meeting bands you know I guess in a few or you know like the second comp we did. And I don't know if I'm getting ahead of myself here. If you want to go in chronological order, well, I, I definitely I've got believe me that first comp like that track listing is ridiculous. Like, and it's also cool because you know obviously the second comp it, it's a lot bigger in scope of where you're picking the bands from. But on that first compilation, it seems like it's it. You know, it doesn't go all the way up to San Francisco, I guess, but you get most of like Southern California represented, be it Battalion of Saints yeah. or Bad Religion, Social Distortion, or even you know Oxnard's there with aggression. Yeah, well, and that and that record though, you were saying, you know, it was just a, you're just sort of everybody sort of meeting. Yeah, that that record was pretty much we knew aggression and then talked to them about doing this. We didn't know Battalion of Saints when we went into the studio. Did we even know? It was through Mark Rude, but I don't even remember how it came about. But he, he was managing yeah. them, and he just We said, knew Mark. Yeah. And Mark said, you got to check these guys out. And we didn't... We also knew... We knew the adolescents, too. Well, we knew the adolescents. We knew Bad Religion, GSL. because we played with them. We knew... No, they're not on us. <laughs> Still, we knew them. <laughs> we knew them, but we did They weren't... No, but... So, for example, the Joneses and the Battalion Saints... We never heard them before they came into the studio to record for that. So we had no idea what was going to happen. 
And I remember with the Joneses was the weird. That was a weird one. I can't remember. That's a weird who, one. Yeah. Steve Olson. No, I know, but who? I don't know how we ended up getting him in. I think it was like Steve. It was the guys from the Blades. Like, oh, you should check out the Joneses. Yeah, yeah. Man. And we needed another band, and so they came up to Hollywood to go in the studio, and we were listening to the tracks, and we we're like, man, I don't know if this fits at all. Now, then it became my favorite song. On, you know, my favorite songs on the record. No, but the but the really like weird, classic, one, the really know? weird one. Like the Blades were our friends because we we made friends with a lot of people in Huntington and Adolescence too, and Aggression we made friends with. But the the really weird one for me, I mean, the Joneses definitely, but Battalion and Saints, we had no idea what they sounded like. Mark Rube was a friend of ours. He was like, I'm in this band, they're great. You, you should put them on this compilation. You know, normally we would never do that, but, you know, after that record, it was never sight unseen that we would ever put a record about. We were putting this compilation out, and we thought, all right, we need some bands. For whatever reason, some of the other bands that we knew couldn't do it. I mean, the Bad Religion track was already done. And I think we didn't record the adolescent stuff, did we? No. Yeah, that, that was already done as well. But so the Battalion of Saints come up there, and we meet them. And like I said, we'd never heard them before. So they start playing, and George puts a, a baffle up in the, in the studio because he, he doesn't want anybody to watch him when he sings. Okay. <laughs> like, okay, that was weird for us. We'd never yeah. seen anything like that. Um, it was kind of weird. Like, What's going on? This is strange. <laughs> and they go into the song, and I'm like, what the fuck? This is insane. And because because when he sings, he he sings like when he he was playing live. He's jumping around like a maniac behind his baffle. So we were just sitting there looking at each other, saying, "What the fuck? This is insane." So we were pleasantly surprised. Put it that way. Yeah, I can imagine that's a uh, you know that makes up for the weirdness of the Joneses of the Joneses is getting that battalion of saints in the studio. I guess. Yeah, yeah. but the, but but I like the Joneses stuff. I mean, yeah. I, I I think Oluz is never going to work with. We just, it was we, pretty different for yeah. the record. But we rolled with the whole thing. I mean, I, I think it's a really good snapshot of what was going on in, in the L.A., in the Southern California punk scene. You, you know, yeah, we didn't get up to some... It was really a Southern California record. It, it wasn't meant to, to be anything but that. And, you know, sometimes those things just come together at the time. The, just weird. I mean, we didn't... And sometimes a band records something... And that, that recording defines their sound for them. Yep. And that's mm -hmm. what the Battalion of Saints uh, recording yeah. did. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, no, that definitely, that, that compilation still holds up. But uh, so was that compilation, like when that came out, was it, you know, immediately kind of picked up upon? Was it like a success? Because there's like a, a ton of pressings of it. Yeah. Yeah, it did, it did, yeah, it did well. really well. We got a ton of attention, like, you know, especially locally with all, you know, the LA time and the, well, and I'll give you another little little nugget for you. Matt Groening yeah. from The Simpsons was the music. Uh, he was the music editor um, for the reader. for the local LA Reader, which no longer exists. But it was it, it had come in because there was a Chicago Reader, and they, they started an LA Reader. And it was a competition for the LA Weekly, which at the time was the big local weekly. But he he was awesome. I mean, he loved punk rock, and he would just. He would call us when we were doing Godzilla's and say, "Hey, hey, what's going on? What's going on? What are you guys doing?" And I, you know, I'd start talking and say, "Hold on, hold on, let me go to my typewriter." And he would, he wrote about what we were doing. He was great. He was very supportive, and he loved that record. That's he wrote awesome. A of it. Yeah. Um, and so, like by that point, I guess you know things are going right. Like, are, had you already? You guys hadn't toured though. Like, I guess it's just Southern California stuff you're doing at this point. 
Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think we maybe we've been up to San Francisco. We've been down to San Diego. Um, but yeah, we hadn't really. I don't even think we'd gone to Phoenix yet. I think that came a little bit later. So, but yeah, that's when we decided. Once that we recorded that, someone got their head kicked in. That came out. We also recorded a Youth Brigade record, um, and that's when we had already started coming up with the idea. Well, we'd come up with the idea of doing the tour because we bought the school bus, mm. and the school bus is in the photo on the back of the "Someone Got Their Head Kicked in" compilation. So, Sound and Fury, the original version, is recorded at the same time. Uh, right after, at right after, okay. Uh, at at Mistake Studios with Doug Douchebag Moody. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, I want to ask you so much stuff, uh, but, but you've brought, you've said a, a trigger word here at Turned Out a Punk, Doug Moody. What was it like uh, working with the infamous Doug Moody? Um, I'll, I'll I'll give him this. He was a wealth of knowledge. He was a good bullshitter and a salesman, but he was a wealth of knowledge, and he did help us out early on. Um, and gave us a lot of stuff to think about and, and sort of helped out. However, he was also a scammer. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, his studio, you know, he's got a million stories. I don't know how many of them were true. I mean, according to him, Led Zeppelin recorded with him. Or with, or no, maybe more like Led Zeppelin recorded on that board that I had, you know, 20 years earlier or whatever. But... He did give us some information that was good, you know, and he said, look, you know, you're putting out, you start, this was the biggest problem, this is the falling out that we had with him. So when we recorded, we didn't, we ran out of money, and he said, you know, while we were recording and we were talking with him every day, and he said, look, you know, when you're a small label like this, it's really hard to go and get your records sold, it would be smart, because he was just sort of looking at the lay of the land, and he'd been involved in independent records for a while but he didn't really know much about punk rock we were the first punk rock band that he'd ever you know when he's like an older guy he was like 20 years old you know, oh he's in his four, he was in his 40s for sure back then so so he started saying you know you go and you want to put these records in the stores you're gonna have a difficult time you need a distributor i mean there's other labels aren't there and i said yeah there's ssc there's a he's all you what you need is sort of someone to come in and, and, and put together a sort of consortium where these labels all group together and then you can go to distributors and you've got power, which he's right. I mean, it made sense. However, his thing was, you guys, we should do that. And I said, uh, I don't really want to be the guinea pig for your, thi- for your idea, yeah. but why don't you get it going? Once you get it going, then, you know, if it's working, sure. And he's all, well, I gave you credit and you owe me money. So he kind of sort of extorted us into his little plan and I said I tell you what we'll do that for the we'll, we'll, we'll. he made, he went down to one of the distributors because independent distributors were just started starting to pop up at that point mm-hmm. and he went down to was too important I think it was right yeah, yeah. important records which was out of New York but they had an open in LA office and he said ah, I got this new compilation and I got this youth brigade record and he made a deal with them which was basically they would front the money for the pressing of this first the first pressing, and we were leaving on another state of mind tour. Okay, he's going to do that. He go, I got I got an advance. I'll pay for the pressing of all this stuff. Great, and then we'll settle up when you get back. We come back. Uh, hey, Doug, dude, all the shit sold out. We want to repress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where's the money? We need an accounting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No problem. We'll get that for you. 
no accounting's coming, nothing's really happening. So basically, he bullshitted, he took the money, he spent some of the money, and he also put the name of our record in his name, you know, the pre all, at the pressing plant, all the parts, everything was under his name. So when we wanted to repress, they were all, you need to get permission from Doug Moody, it's all under his name. Oh. And he was, he was dicking around and dicking around, you know, his, his studio, Mystic Mistake, was around the corner from the Cafe de Grand. So we were at the cafe one night with a bunch of the guys from Aggression, and I don't know if you ever saw them. The bass player, Big Bob, he's a big dude. Yeah, they're big all dude. Yeah, they're all friends of ours. So we were at the cafe, and we're talking about how this guy's dicking us, and we just, we're, we're drinking, and we're like, fuck it, let's go over there. So we go around the corner, and we go, hey, Doug, going to come up and say hi. Oh, yeah, come up, guys. And basically got in his face and said, listen, motherfucker, you need to call the fucking pressing plant and the, and the, and the processing plant and, and tell them to put the shit in our name oh, tomorrow. We, got, we took all the tapes. Yeah, tomorrow morning. <laughs> Otherwise, we're going to destroy your studio right now. And he was like, oh, no, no, okay, okay, no, 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 don't do that. All right, all right. And he did that, and that was pretty much the last time we ever dealt with him because he owed us money. Mm -hmm. We said, where's the advance from all this? We sold 2,000 records. This is how much it costs. Where's the rest of the money? Well, you know, I had to just pay for this and that and blah, blah, blah. And just bullshit. And he owed us about 1,500 bucks by our estimation. And in fact, we took him to small claims court. Mark went to, to that. What happened with that, Mark? I didn't go. Yeah, you did. What? The Judge Judy thing? No, they wanted us to go into people's court. We said, Really? That would have been amazing. I know, we should have done we that. We should have done that. Because, you know, but I said no, because people's court pays both sides. They just pay off and go. Yeah. 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 So I'm like, fuck that guy. We have an open and shut case. I never went to court. Yeah, you went to court. No, I didn't. Yeah, you did. And you lost. <laughs> that, um, but that, so is it, that's the reason that it was never repressed properly? Or, or was it just that you guys no. didn't like the recording? No, 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 no. no. The, it, it, no, the reason that we stopped, we stopped, we called back when we were on the road and we said, because we didn't get a chance, it wasn't pressed before we left on tour. Yeah. So we got some shipped to us when we were on tour and we put it on a rate on, on somebody's turntable at somebody's house and it sounded like shit. Yeah. Uh, what the fuck? This sucks. Yeah. Well, in the end, if you listen to anything off of Mystic back then, it all sucks. And, and I'll attribute it to Mystic. But I also no, it's Richard Simpson. Richard Simpson yeah. mastering was one guy in this little room, and everybody mastered with him. He was he was very cheap. It was very he was very cheap, and it was like this really old equipment, you know, where he cut the lacquers and and when you go back and listen to anything that came out of L.A. at that time that was mastered by um, Richard, yeah, it was it, not good. It just sounded like it was inside a pillow. Yeah, yeah. it's just not good. So yeah, oh. so we stopped printing it. Um, because the sound, we didn't like the sound. We thought it was the mix, but we we discovered years later that it was really just Richard's bad mastering. Um, well, plus we had written, plus we were on the road. We had written a bunch of new songs. Yeah. So then we, when we came back, we went back into the studio. We went in with Tom Wilson. We only re-recorded a few songs. I think we were violence. Plus Tom, Man. Tom had done uh, TSOL, yeah. and uh, I don't know if he had done DOA yet. Four and forty-five. I think. I don't know. That might have come after. I can't remember. That's after. But anyhow, so that's why we we redid it. Um, when uh, what, like going back to Mystic Records, had had he been putting out those? Because he did that stickball seven inch. He did a Helix seven inch. He did that uh, Aryan Disgrace single. Right. All that shit after. came after us. Everything. We were the first. Whoa, we were the that's first. crazy. That's how 
Yeah, that's how he met aggression. And then by meeting aggression, he convinced them to, to work with him and, and he got introduced to the whole Nardcore scene. And he, you know, now he claims that he created the whole Nardcore scene. But the guy's a fucking piece of shit because while, while I will give it to him that he created a situation See, where all no, these, no filter. Where all these bands <laughs> could, could record and put records out, the fact is that he ripped them all off. He never gave anyone a statement. He just figured that if he gave bands copies of the record, that's all he needed to do. Oh, you know where he made his money on this on the no effects no record. Yeah, Mike. Yeah. Mike just fucking turned and, and over. Mike's like, well, I just told him to give us ten percent of the pressing, and I don't really give a shit. And I'm like, does he give it to you? He's all actually no. Yeah, <laughs> the guy's a fucking thief, and I've been saying it for years, and I keep telling all these bands uh, up, up in Oxnard who are friends of ours. I'm all, dude, he never paid you. He doesn't own your shit. You don't have a contract. Just go and repress it. He can't do anything to you. What's he going to do? He'll threaten to sue you. He doesn't have any money to sue you. He lives in a fucking mobile home. Uh, that, his library, though, the tapes he must be sitting on of like, you know, like the no effects of, um, as well, but like the America's Hardcore stuff, the Battalions of Saints stuff. Like there's just so much shit. Yeah, but knowing him, those tapes those are tapes already are oxidized. Apart. You know, yeah. because that's the thing. If you have tapes, they're oxidized. You have to pay yeah. someone to bake those tapes and digitize them. I mean, I you know that's already been done. So those tapes are probably in the trash. Yeah, yeah. I would. Uh, man, I would. <laughs> I hope there's some that stuff survives somehow. But that's yeah, why. I, like, sorry. I don't. I don't see Doug Moody having a temperature controlled locker no. for his tapes. No. You know, and I, I never even thought about the fact that you guys worked with Doug Moody, but like, if it wasn't for the fact that you guys worked with him, then he like, you know, never been yeah, never. yeah, like he could have gone into something else completely different. And then like, wow, that would have been a slightly different history of punk rock without he could, that. He jacket. could have gone into hip hop and been even richer. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> well, because the guys, so right down the street was the guys that we were pressing our records with in that day, Don McMillan. Yeah. It used to be Alcoast. Alco pressing plant, and it, one of the guys that worked there is a Canadian, Kane Boychuk, who worked. He worked for Cargo for a little while. Yeah. Okay. He he worked there, and uh, and Don decided when 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 all these rap bands started, and they were sort of following the same model of us of DIY. He he basically they would come to him to press a record, but they didn't really have the money, so he pulled this sort of similar shit. I mean, he wasn't ripping anybody off as far as I know, but basically he'd say, you know what, I'll tell you what, you don't have the money to press this stuff, I'll press it, give me a percentage. And so he sort of took control. And I mean, he didn't really know the music, but he had a few hits. And because he had a few hits, just like anybody who doesn't really know the music or, or, or understand what's going on, he started bringing in any, you know, all these rappers were going, all these LA rappers were going to him. What he didn't understand is just because he sold 100,000 copies of one, doesn't mean you're going to sell 100,000 copies of the next one. So he was flush with cash for a while. And I remember going down there. I'm like, holy shit, records to the ceiling. And Kane, Kane would say, yeah, man, we got this new rap thing. He's like, I don't get it. But some of the stuff I knew, and I knew that it was going to be big. Some of the stuff I'd never heard of. But, you know, six months later when I went back, wow, you got a new record? He's all, no, these are returns from the, this one and that one. <laughs> because he pressed 100,000 thinking he was going to sell 100000 of everything that came in. And, uh, yeah, that didn't work out so well. So he was bankrupt within a few years. And, and funny enough, Epitaph ended up buy, buying that, well, renting that place out and, and 
when they started blowing up in the early 90s, they were in that space for a while. Man, that's that's wild, like how, I don't know, just how much stuff, like, you know, happened just because of punk rock, you know? Like, it's, it's amazing. Oh, yeah. What yeah. it kickstarts everywhere. Um, oh, yeah. I, I've obviously kept you guys for a long time already, and there's like a bunch of burning questions that I have to ask you about because these are like record nerd questions. But would you guys come on for part twos separately or together again in the future? Because my God, there's so much to talk about. Happy to. Yeah, no problem. Um, but before I let you go, I got to bring this into this international thing because I think Youth Brigade doesn't really get the credit that you guys deserve as far as being a band that, I don't know, like can connect a lot of disparate different punk scenes. So how did the relationship start with AA records, for example, like that, you know, story Japanese label. Um, that was a writing back and forth thing. I think they sent, sent, they wrote us maybe first. I don't remember, but I was a, a prolific, uh, writer, postcard and letter writer. And, you know, I would just write to people, but I think they may have written us first. I don't remember, but, yeah, it was just a matter of, hey, you know, Japanese people are very into sending you cool picture discs and stuff like that. And they sent us stuff and they said, hey, you guys want to do something with us? And we said, sure, why not? Because we, we thought, hey, getting our, our music out to as many different places as possible is great. And um, I, I remember that Timmy O'Hannon was very, very upset that I had a picture disc of, shit, I can't remember the name of the band that was on AA that we had. The, uh, the uh, laughing nose picture disc. Laughing nose, exactly. The yeah. pussy for sale record. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. They, they, it's uh, like that is. It's so cool that you guys are on that label because that label puts out, you know, like Japanese oi stuff like Cobra, but then the Zao seven inch and like Auto and just like the the top tier Japanese hardcore stuff. Were you into the records they were putting out, or was it more just to have a record in Japan? No, I'll admit to you, man. We are not record nerds like that. I mean, <laughs> It just comes across our plate, and we listen to it like, "Oh, this is cool," or "Whoa, well, this is weird." Yeah, we had them. In, <laughs> we had them in Japan, and then we, you know, at Southern Studios in, in England, doing our stuff. You know, they did all the crafts. Yep. Well, oh, yeah. the reason I hooked up with Southern was because they were doing Discord. Yeah. Well, I'm just saying, worked with some good people. Well, yeah, no, it's it's. I'm I'm not gonna. I'm gonna say if they if AA Records did send you a box of records back then, if you held on to them. Uh, good on you because there are some pretty expensive records in their catalog now. I don't want them. I'll take them. I'll take them. Yeah, send them over here if you got them because uh, I I would love another copy of the Zao Seven Inch. I spent all my all my birthday money on one last year and it and it hurt hurt really hard. Hurt really hard. Yeah, I I have a I have a turntable digitizer, you know, where you can play the record and digitize it on your computer. And and I've been planning for, I don't know, the last 15 years to to sit down and digitize all the stuff and then just sell my record collection. But yeah, that never happens. Well, I, and I, I my, wouldn't do that. My turntable hasn't been plugged in in, fuck, at least 15 years, probably longer. Well, I think yeah. just in records that your band has put out, I could um, pay off, uh, a, you know, a tu- college tuition for you because there are some records <laughs> that I need from you. <laughs> yeah, I oh. guess college tuition in Canada is much cheaper than it is in America. <laughs> well, let us let us know what you don't have. We'll send you a package. Yeah. Oh well, I, I believe me. There's I I can't even. Okay, 
you're going to get an email. I promise. But um, <laughs> the next the next record label, like almost immediately after, you did a split with Vicious Circle, like the of course the Australian Vicious Circle on Reactor Records, another incredible label that put out a lot of great Australian hardcore. How did that relationship come about? Like, was that just once again through letter writing? Yeah. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. And we never went there. Can you believe it? We've we still never, never been to Australia. Really? And That's we... wild. Yeah. Yeah. That is, that is definitely, you got to go there at least to sign copies of the epitaph care split. <laughs> <laughs> we, we just go there just to serve. Yeah. That's what we tell people. You want us to come to your country? As long as you pay our expenses and we can serve, we're good. But was that what that record was though made for an originally for a tour, right? I mean, I think there was talk of it, but yeah, there's always talk of it. It never, it never came. Yeah, because together. it's all hell. Yeah, we'll come. Can you pay us enough money to pay the airfare? Yeah, and you know, for for us to 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 to, to do the tour. Oh, we don't have that kind of money. Well, we we don't either. <laughs> yeah, I think because it, it might even make reference on the lyric sheet to an upcoming tour. So sure. uh, I guess, yeah, the, the reality of airfares must have hit pretty hard. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, sure. Everyone's all, you guys going to come, you want to come on a tour? Hell yeah, we do. You want to send us plane tickets? <laughs> oh, we don't have that. <laughs> Especially nobody was paying for that stuff. No, I mean, the, the, the European tour we did in 84 was because we saved up money. We basically set up a tour across the U.S., and from that tour, we had enough money to go fly to Europe. And you guys had records coming. Oh, I guess the records came out afterwards, right? Because you did, uh, you're on that compilation that 77KK Records did, and they put out a oh, LP, too. Yeah. Yeah, well, what, but, but before we went to Europe, we, we, had, we had the Southern, we made the deal with Southern. They, they actually took over uh, pressing, but they, I believe they had released some of the, did they? Nah, oh, no, that was nah, after. That was, later. that was later in the eighties. So yeah, we didn't have a we didn't have a release there. We just brought some records with us. Oh, did they? Did they do what prices? Uh, what what price happiness for that tour? Because there's a UK pressing of that, right, from '84. Yeah, actually, it might have been. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they did because I flew in. Remember, we we went to we went across the country, and I flew out early. And, the, and John fucked up on the date and booked the date, our first date in London with the subhumans the wrong day. Uh, so yeah. I was there for the show, but Mark and Adam weren't coming until the next day. And oh, yeah, no. I don't know. That's, that's the beauty of letter writing is people just don't read the letters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I guess. No, so I was there. I was there and I got to watch the subhumans play. And I'm all, hey, guys, I can't play because that's just me. And I, I don't do solo. Sorry. <laughs> what was the uh what kind of shows were you guys playing in your bodies with subhumans but um like was it mainly with sort of the peace punk stuff or the more anarcho stuff or more of the oi stuff uh it was both. whatever it was whatever i mean we, we did the one with uk subs at the hundred club yeah and then uh in europe yeah probably more oi bands i think it was a bit of both i mean we played with rapper zalia in, oh, uh, in milan and uh and we played with Escorbuto in Spain and Barcelona. What? Yeah. And, what was uh, that show like? It was awesome. I mean, it was just kind of a whirlwind because we were just partying and getting fucked up and meeting all these so, new people. Yeah, what happened crazy. when we got to England was we used Peter and Testu Baby's van. <laughs> and it was the Rolling Stones. No, road. it wasn't their van. It was, was it their van? I mean, they, they, their, they, their manager helped us. Yeah, it was basically, basically DOA. Joey gave us a bunch of info. 
because they just toured Europe and they said, yeah, here's all the people that we use. This guy's cool. These people are cool. He even gave us the number for this guy in, in Poland and said, dude, they want bands to play. We couldn't do it. We didn't have time. But And we actually played five shows? Yeah. Five shows in Poland. Before, we were the first time. Before the wall was down. Yeah. So it was like well, that crazy. Was, that was a trip. But the crazy thing is, is that we... <laughs> we were in London and we get the the van and they sent us out with this guy to be our tour manager. Yeah, and we never been there. It's the three of us and our two roadies from another state of mind. Yeah. Marlon, the black guy, and mm. Brian, the skinhead guy who's doing the slam dance lessons. Guy, yeah. 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 So, so those two big guys, right? And we get there. Uh, we do the couple shows in England and we get over to Amsterdam and the guy says, hey, did they tell you how much you're paying me? And we said no. And he, it was like 300 quid. A day, and we we're like, "Yeah, see you later." <laughs> There's the ferry. We were, yeah, we, we were, in, we were in somebody's house. We were staying in somebody's house in Holland, and he's all, and we said, "Yeah, sorry, dude, we can't afford that." And he's all, "Uh, well, can you drive to, me to to the airport?" No, to the to, to the, the ferry. ferry. <laughs> and we're like, "The bus stops right there." He's like, "That's so pedestrian." <laughs> <laughs> and so we just got a map. And we just did it within in our van was a uh, right hand drive, right hand drive with the with the Union Jack on painted on the whole side of it. It was a Rolling Stones roadies van, and we we're going to Eastern Bloc, like going through like East Germany, Czechoslovakia. You no, we played two shows in Yugoslavia. No tour manager, yeah. just with the map. Go right, go left. <laughs> the next thing you know, we're getting pulled over. We got machine guns on us. I mean, oh, yeah. It was crazy. Yeah. That's awesome. So what, did you play with Deserter in uh, in Poland? Yeah. Deserter and uh, Exena. Oh. Yeah. That hit me up. So yeah. yeah. That's yeah. amazing. And some motherfucker stole my Vox guitar in Poland. And was it in Warsaw? It was in Warsaw. Yeah. We were partying so crazy in the rooms we were staying in. And and, and it's somebody who's a friend of some band because he's like, I still have the guitar. I'm like, fuck you. I want it back. I love <laughs> yeah. that guitar. Yeah. Vox a lot of vodka. A lot of vodka. You couldn't even get beer after 10 a.m. in Poland. Yeah. So if you if you wanted beer, you would have to go to the store in the morning and buy it. Because stand by noon, in the line. Stand in line. Those by noon, there everywhere. was nothing left in the stores. Yeah. So mm-hmm. if you, you'd have to buy the beer and just have, like, you know, bags of beer. And so at night, there would just be vodka. And it's just like, yeah, you're Canadian. You could drink with us. Yeah. Which yeah. we did. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing too, because like every city you're going to, you're playing with like the hardcore band. It sounds like from that area, well, at least from like someone not from there that I know of from those areas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what yeah. A tool. But I, I don't remember any bands that we played with in Germany. Do you? I think we played with BGK and Holland. In Holland, we did. Yeah, we did play with BGK. But Talks did we? Class, maybe maybe? We with, no, no, maybe we played with Upright Citizens. Though. Oh yeah. 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 Upright Citizens, we did a couple shows one. Because you got to do a record from later on. Yeah, do you know you know David Pollock? You know Destiny uh, in Berlin? Uh, I don't know if I know that, actually. Uh, so what was his first band? Uh, and I can't remember the name of it, but he was our promoter on that tour. Oh, Destiny Berlin. Records. Sorry. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah Destiny yeah. Tour Booking. He does uh, Yeah, he, he, had the, he had the booking whale before he ever had the label. Yeah. They did that he, compilation yeah, he, that you guys were on too, I think. Yeah, yeah he did. He didn't ask us. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the other thing that I wanted to add, one of the first Youth Brigade records I actually ever got like on vinyl was that weird flexi that came out with a British fanzine that I found in a used record store in Toronto that you did with seven seconds. 
Oh yeah, what what was on it? Cinco California and and they do colorblind on their side. Oh, colorblind, colorblind, yeah. yeah. That's a great but was song. that? Did you guys press that, or is that a Southern thing that I guess Southern would have done because it's a British fanzine? Uh, I, think I think the fanzine. I think the yeah, it was the fanzines thing. It was a freebie, you know. No, it's, it's absolutely that was. I remember getting it as a kid, finding that thing, and it was like a Rosetta Stone for me. Um, and I guess <laughs> another thing I want to ask you about a weird thing when I bought the Aggression album as a young person, I opened it up, and inside there was a newsletter, a BYO newsletter, but it was oh, written yeah. by uh, Pusshead, Brian Schroeder. Yeah. Well, he didn't write the whole newsletter. What we so Pusshead did the logo for BYO. Yeah, he also did the cover art for someone got their head kicked in. So probably what was on that newsletter was his explanation of what the logo was. But I wrote the, I wrote all the stuff for the newsletters. And then our brother Adam did some of the graphics early on. But the shit that we, the shit that we probably put in that was sort of, that was him explaining the logo and how, you know, the vision and this. And, what, and that, that logo was really something that was not like any of the other shit that he did. Most of the shit he did was weird, horror, fucked up stuff yeah absolutely but so it was like it wasn't like they were you know doing something with the label other than he just did the logo type thing yeah i mean we helped him put out the his septic depth like we we helped him put out his own record we didn't put it out but we i, I hooked him up with the pressing plant and all that and told him how to do it but we didn't want to put it out because it was just not our thing you know i didn't think i could sell it um, and it wasn't something we, we mostly put out stuff that we really like and think we can help the band. And I just, you know, I like Pusshead and I get what he was doing, but it's just not our thing. Absolutely. But it's still like amazing. Once again, like another kind of like realm of punk that you guys just kind of like bump into. Yeah. I mean, in those days it was a very small scene. So everybody kind of knew everybody or everybody met everybody. And you know, that's, you know, we were friends with all the Discord guys. We were friends with the Boston people. Plus, it was before everybody blew up. You know, yeah. Nobody was popular back then. <laughs> <laughs> it was a, it, it, every every city had this little scene. You know, maybe it was fifty people, maybe it was five hundred people, whatever it was. I mean, but we were all growing together. But it was like what Mark was saying earlier about how after that initial sort of 77 punk rock scene that started New York, London, and then the L.A. scene. When it blew up in L.A., L.A.'s been the biggest punk rock scene in the world ever since then, since the early 80s. You know, nowhere you could go where a good punk show will draw 5,000 people pretty easily in L.A., and, and now it's, it can be more like 10,000. Yeah, yeah, even 20 if it's a good enough bill. Mm -hmm. You don't find that really anywhere else. That's, that's not going to happen in London. It's not going to happen in New York. Yeah, no, definitely. It feels like, you know, it will just like, you know, just the names that were rhyming off here, be it like Matt Groening or, or, uh, no crisis. It's just like amazing. All the kind of levels of culture that are coming out of that punk scene. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's pretty crazy. Um, before I let you go, last question type thing. What was it with the Winnipeg scene? Cause you guys did do so many records from bands from that city. Uh, what do you think it was about that city that produced so many cool bands and made you want to put well, a record by them? Just did two, Unwanted and, and Stretch Marks, and then we had SNFU, which was Edmonton. It, it's yeah. just that when we were on that Another State of Mind tour, first of all, we met a ton of cool people, and that, and we always felt this this sort of you know kinship because we're Canadian and we like the bands and. Like I said, we put out stuff that we like and we, we think we can help the bands. And there were so many cool bands and nice people that 
we just wanted to help them out. And I mean, look, SNFU, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're, yeah. They're one of our they were just, fans. they were just an opener on our show and we, we were there and they, I don't even know if we did, we hadn't heard them yet. No. And they just hit the stage and we were like, holy shit, these guys are amazing. Yeah, that was on our first, and that then, was on the second tour after another state. Right, Martin. and that's how we ended up signing them. We were like, hey, you know, we'll put your record out because we knew how to put records out, so. Yeah. The bill from that, but I always felt like Western Canadian bands were powerful. They just had the best musicians. Yeah. Um, there was a whole sound there, you know, from DOA, Personality Crisis. I mean, the musicianship was insane. Yeah. It always was like that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I guess, like, you know, because you did play all these scenes and got to play with all these bands, like, what to you is like a band that kind of fell through the cracks that you don't think kind of gets talked about that you saw, like being on that Another State of Mind tour or some of the later tours or even on that European tour? So many. It, I don't even know where to be. I'll tell you one, though. I'll tell you one that what, when we were still in the extremes, um, the mask closed down and Brendan opened another called the New Mask. It, it didn't last more than, I don't even think it lasted a year, maybe in eight months. But I remember the Dead Boys played and uh, this band that opened up for them, and I mean, I'd never, at that point, this was probably 79, so I don't even know if the Bad Brains existed, but if they did, we'd never heard of them. This band called Pure Hell. Oh, opened. yeah. Yeah, and no one really knew who the hell they were, and we just heard, oh, this band Pure Hell is from Philly, and they came out, I think they were a three-piece. And the fucking singer was doing handstands on the stage, they fucking blew us away. So that that's a band that, you know, what the hell? They were amazing. What? Where they? They came and they were gone. I don't even know if they even put out a record or anything. There's one seven inch, and then there's a CD that kind of has some live tracks on it. But definitely one of the most obscure bands ever. That's so crazy. I can't believe they made it up to LA to play shows too. Yeah, I couldn't either. We didn't know anything about them. But Brendan, you know, Brendan was the shit. Brendan knew. Brendan found out about a lot of bands. But it, it, that's the sad thing, and we talk about it a bit in our movie and in the book that um, we just feel that L.A. just doesn't get the, the, the recognition that it deserves. But that's but whatever. I mean, you know, we get the same thing for the people like to talk shit about L.A. But L.A., this is a great city and that so much great music has come out of here. And when it comes to the punk scene, you know, people do these retrospectives like that punk thing on Epics that they just made. And no doubt, the Stooges and Iggy, they're the kings, you know. And there's great bands out of... New York, and there was great bands out of London, but look, this scene, punk rock's been going on now for what, 35, 40 years, mm-hmm. even longer if you want to go all the way back to the, the late 60s with the Stooges and stuff, but the majority of its its longevity is because of the LA punk rock scene and what's gone on here. I mean, from the late 70s all the way through now, there are so many bands here that are classic bands that people know about all over the world and you know it's just kind of a shame when people do these retrospectives and they don't recognize what's gone on here and how how crucial our you know all these bands contribution has been yeah like, but that's okay no we they like never talk about zolar x they never talk about the screamers zolar like you x. <laughs> did you just say zolar x i love that zolar x 12 inch <laughs> Yeah, but see, Zolar X was kind of in the metal in the early metal scene. They they were a weird band, man. <laughs> Did you ever see them live? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's. There, so... there, there was a club. They were they were around when Van Halen was starting out. 
Van Halen would open for them. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, they would play Gazaris. And then there was that club for a minute. Was it the Cabaret down where the Beverly Center eventually came up? Remember? Yeah, I think it was the Cabaret. It was a, it was a goth dance club after a while, but they were doing some metal shows down there for a minute. And I'm pretty sure Zolar X. Yeah, Zolar X was definitely, uh, they were quite the show. Oh, this is so awesome. Thank you both so much for coming on the show. And please know. No, no problem. No problem. Thanks for having us. The yeah. door is always open. Always open. All right. All right, we'll talk again sometime soon, and definitely we're looking forward to seeing you in, in a, what, three weeks, basically. Oh, man. That's going to be fun. i got to get to work. <laughs> you better book all those bands, Mark. Jeez. <laughs> Thank you, Mark and Sean, for coming on the show. And you can hear right there this room for part two, part three, part four. We didn't even talk about another state of mind, so they will be back in the future for more. I promise you that. And also, I can promise you something else. We're going to have an episode dropping tomorrow. That's right. More on that in one second. But before I talk about that, remember, Punk Rock Bowling is coming up next weekend in Las Vegas. There's tons of other shows and events going on around it, including an incredible official wrestling after party with Turned Out a Punk friend, I guess, uh, official wrestler of sorts, one Mr. Darby Allen wrestling, also friend, official wrestler of the podcast as well. Matt Cross will be wrestling as, uh, on all that. Suburban Fight's putting that on. Uh, we'll have more information about that next week. But Punk Rock Bowling is in Las Vegas it, it, next weekend. It's going to be incredible. If you're not, if you don't have plans, come on out. You know, how could you not want to see all these incredible bands that are going to be playing on that thing? Also, next week on the 22nd Wednesday, the Wrestlers, the TV show that I, I, I myself and my buddies Jeff and Nathan and Yuji and 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 Grady and Sarah and and so many of a call and all of us poured so much love and heart and soul into this show. And it's finally debuting, uh, with an episode featuring one Mr. Darby Allen. Uh, it's going to be debuting next Wednesday on Viceland, 10 PM Eastern time, I believe worldwide, 10 PM. Well, not worldwide in America. It's going to be coming out in other places soon. I'll have more details on that in the near future, but it's going to be coming out next week on Wednesday, and then right actually the day after, I'm going to be going and doing a podcast with my buddies, John Pollock and Wei Ting, talking about the episode and kind of uh, digging deep and telling what happened to the characters afterwards, and, you know, it's going to be a fun podcast. I'm going to be doing that with those guys. They also have a brand new documentary dropping themselves, uh, a podcast documentary about the last day of Owen Hart. So if you're a wrestling fan... Check out Post Wrestling. Check out Post Wrestling for the Wrestlers After Show, but check it out for that documentary as well. They do great work. Shout out to those guys. I, I owe those guys a lot. They, you know, you know, you listen to this podcast, you know, I, I give those guys credit for really being key influences on me starting this podcast. So you, know, you got to love that wrestling podcast. Okay, I'm delaying it. Coming up tomorrow on Turned Out of Punk, it's going to be dropping tomorrow night about midnight as well. Uh, so heading into uh, your Friday, you're going to have a chance to listen to this thing. Uh, Milo from The Descendants is coming on the show. Shout out to Vanessa for setting this up. Uh, yep, that's that's all you need to say. Milo, the legend, the vocalist, vocalist, 
is coming on the show, and it is a doozy of an episode. There's a lot of stuff that I had no idea about. Maybe you know some of the stuff. I didn't know all the stuff, that's for sure. Uh, we talk about some cool things. Milo is awesome. I love hanging out with this guy, and so the chance to punish him, that's why I do this thing, you know? It's one thing to get to hang out with someone. It's another thing to force them to answer your questions for an hour. You know, that's how... That's, that's how you, you, you know you've picked the right thing to do with your life, a podcast, when you get to punish people like that. All right. I'm going to leave you to the uh, punishment of doing without this podcast till tomorrow. Uh, thank you once again to Vanessa for today. Thank you to Mark and Sean. Thank you to Vanessa for setting up tomorrow as well. Thank you to Tristan. Thank you to you. Go out there and make your own culture. Tell all your friends about this podcast. Sign your organ donor cards. I'll see you next week. I will see you next week. We got a big week next week too, but I'll see you tomorrow. What am I talking about next week? I'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow on Turn Out a Punk. Woo! Wrestlers, next week, May 22nd. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up zero to one grams of net carbs, five to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. <laughs>